ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. A lot of us take it for granted that when we run the tap, what comes out is clean, potable water. But that's not the case in the New South Wales regional town of Yass. Locals say the water is simply not suitable for drinking. They say it's brown, it often smells like rotting socks, and the mineralisation plays havoc on washing machines, dishwashers, and even in the past on dialysis machines. It's putrid, uh, even the smell of it, the colour of it, um, like rotten socks. I want my grandkids who live here in Yass to, to be able to drink, you know, water that's drinkable and not happen to bath in a brownie-coloured thing that comes out of a tap. Despite efforts to fix the dirty water, the problem persists and Yass is not the only regional town to find itself in this dirty water boat. A new study by the Australian National University says more than 400 regional towns in Australia do not have access to good quality water. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. It's 12 months today since the small communities of Tara and Weambila made national headlines after the shootings of two police officers, Constables Rachel McCrow and Matthew Arnold, and local Good Samaritan Alan Dare. A year on, locals are coming to grips with the fact that their quiet town is on the map because of tragedy. Our reporter Peter Gunders was there for the anniversary today and he spoke to the local publican Owen Brewer and Alan Dare's widow Kerry. From behind the bar at Tara's one and only pub, Owen Brewer knows pretty much everyone in town. There's still a fair bit of hurt there. There's a lot of, lot of pain. Um, it's a lot better now than what it was. Like it's, uh, I think the main thing for us is a lot more police presence now than what there was before. And if you're not doing anything wrong, that's, that's a good thing. Like We like it. I do remember it quite well. The two, uh, two young constables used to come into the pub here quite a bit and just get takeaway meals. You know, they were involved in the community quite a bit, so it still yeah, hurts a lot. On a cruise ship a couple of weeks ago, and um, yeah, I mentioned where we come from, and that's exactly what they said, was that's where those two young coppers got killed. And yeah, it was pretty disturbing to know that your own little town is known for that sort of thing, yeah. We're better than that, we're bigger than that. If there's one thing the town would like to be remembered for, it's the animal that is painted on the front window of every second shop in town, and on T-shirts and stubby coolers and key rings. Camel races. <laughs> Camel races is a big show, you know, it's on the, on the world stage, I suppose, now. Um, I don't know, there's somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people turn up for it. No, we definitely want to be known for the, for the camel races and other stuff and not, not that shooting. Uh, I suppose that sort of thing happens in other places too and you don't sort of criticise a town for, for one thing, for two, one or two people's actions. Yeah. On the outskirts of Tara is Weambilla. It's a small locality of 30 and 100 acre blocks, home to people who enjoy a quiet and simple life. And that's exactly what Kerry Dare had with her husband Alan in their container home. It was my dream. He built my dream and then he died. But he had the best three years that he could have ever had before he died. 2019, we decided to give up trucking and we, just, and we decided that we could live on what we were getting. So we stopped working and we took a gap year that lasted three years. <laughs> and we've got the pool, we've got food, we've got 
powdered milk. We've got fire. We've got water. We've got. I've got. They have blackouts in town, and I've got power. I've got power, gas. I've got more water than I can ever use. People think we live rough out here, but I've, this is the best I've ever lived. It's the biggest house I've ever lived in. I know people don't see it as a house, but it's what I've always wanted to do: just live in containers. We used to work at Super Amart with the truck. And they'd get a 40-foot container in and the boys would unload it and Carrie would just walk up and down the bamboo floor and plan what she was going to do. And, and when they got here, that's exactly what we did. We put them down, we levelled them out, we put cut holes in the doors and that's it. There's no insulation, there's no nothing. We live outside till 3 o'clock in the morning if it cools down and then we go to bed for a couple of hours. We had no rules. The first year we were here, we lived on daylight savings because that's what he always, since that trial, he's always wanted daylight savings. So, oh, I was stupid. But we did it. This is my land. This is where I belong. This is where we decided we belonged. What, what would I look like if I ran away? Where would I go? Show me a cheaper place that's more beautiful. And I'm not going anywhere. You can only last here if you're strong. I think. I, I'm ego aside, quite proud of myself. Didn't know if I could do it. So what would you like now? We want more rain, less drama. I think we all should know our neighbours now. If we want to be part of the community, be open. We don't need to know what's going on in your life, but maybe if we do, we can help. That's widow Kerry Dare, whose husband was killed in a shooting in Weambilla a year ago today. And they were both speaking to our reporter, Peter Gunders. ABC Australia Wide. Indigenous fire practitioners say they've been inundated with requests to conduct cultural burns ahead of this year's bushfire season. But four years on from the devastating black summer bushfires, not-for-profit fire sticks say they've received little to no extra support from the government. That's following recommendations from the Bushfires Royal Commission to implement more Indigenous land management and leadership. Reporter in the Bega Valley in New South Wales South East, Bernadette Clark, has this story for us. For 60,000 years, Aboriginal people have managed land, plants and animals through cultural burns. Indigenous fire practitioners say they have been inundated with requests to conduct more, but red tape and minimal resources mean they haven't been able to keep up with demand. Deeranganj and Ewan man Dan Morgan is the regional coordinator of Firesticks, a group who conduct cultural burns across Australia. He's based on the far south coast of New South Wales, where he says red tape has prevented his organisation from doing burns during the last three wet summers. We could have been doing a lot of burning through the area here and around the koala habitat, but being out of the burn period, being in the summer months, you know, we need to have a, a burn permit. We don't have the freedom to manage our lands the way we should, the way our ancestors have for thousands of years. Cultural burns are small, slow and controlled. The idea is that it gives wildlife enough time to flee. Mr Morgan says he left a government-run agency to work with fire sticks so he could work in more traditional ways after witnessing the devastation hazard reduction burns were having on wildlife habitats. Hazard reduction burns conducted mainly by the Rural Fire Service or National Parks and Wildlife Service are hotter and more intense. It's almost like a quota. So they're, they're burning for hectares instead of country and, and they're measuring the success rate of those fires from surface fuel loads per hectare. This is not really just all about koalas, it's about all the different animal species. Far South Coast resident David Dixon lost his home in the Coolagalite Road bushfire last October. 
He wanted a cultural burn, but there were no resources nor time to get to his property before the fire hit. Mr Dixon says a cultural burn was done on a neighbouring property and the home survived the fire. It just makes so much sense and that knowledge, that deep knowledge of how country works and, and how it can be looked after much better than has been done so far. Uh, First Nations people who have this knowledge should be in there doing much more of it, given, given those resources. Co-founder of Firesticks, Victor Stephenson, a Tagalaka man, says more private landholders than ever had been reaching out for cultural burns since the Black Summer bushfires. We've been inundated with calls from private landholders and just general people and um, community-based organisations and communities. There's been a massive shift in calling for Aboriginal land management. And that's something that's really been, you know, for the first time really in Australia's history where the, the majority of Australia is calling out for Indigenous expertise. He's calling for more support from government agencies and corporations to allow traditional custodians to manage landscapes. You know, I was a part of the Royal Commission as I gave evidence, which also came out with recommendations, high recommendations, that Aboriginal burning methods should be incorporated into the mainstream management. And that was all just ignored and um, nothing happened. So since those wildfires three years later, three now going for four years later, there hasn't been any attempt to, to really incorporate Indigenous land management with Indigenous leadership. It's really frustrating. I've been to Parliament House countless times and, and spoken in there thinking I'm going to walk out with some support, but it's always walking out empty-handed. It's, it's a constant battle. Chief Superintendent Area Commander with the RFS, Kelwyn White, says they were committed to working with Aboriginal communities. A, um, a unit has actually been developed within uh, Crown Lands called the Cultural Fire Unit and the New South Wales Rural Fire Service is working really closely with that Cultural Fire Management Unit. The Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt said in a statement the federal government had invested in an Indigenous fire and land management workshops program in response to the Black Summer bushfires. Mr Watt said he welcomes the ongoing investment in grants from state governments to support cultural burning across the country. Co-founder of Firesticks, Victor Stephenson, says he's not giving up and he'll continue to pass on the 60,000-year-old tradition. We need to be focused on one thing together and all on the same page. And that's why we'll never give up until we see what should be happening on this country that has been happening for thousands of years. And that's having custodians caring for it for generations to come into the future. Bernadette Clark reporting there from the Bega Valley in New South Wales. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. They might live only a short drive from the nation's capital, but locals in the town of Yass say their drinking water smells like rotten socks, looks like dirty dishwasher and is undrinkable. In Yass in New South Wales, 85% of residents won't drink their tap water, instead spending thousands of dollars a year on bottled water. Down the road in Burrowa, locals say the water causes skin irritations after they shower. And they're not the only ones. A new study by the Australian National University says more than 400 regional towns do not have access to good quality water. Hamish Cole has this story. Gail Reid has been living in Yass for five years and in that time she has done her best to avoid drinking the water. It's putrid, 
Um, even the smell of it, the colour of it, um, like rotten socks. As a result, she spends $2,000 a year buying bottled water. After being forced into retirement due to a medical issue, the financial burden of the town's poor water quality is putting her under increasing pressure. I'm retired due to a medical condition and, and really sometimes I find it very hard. It's, it's um, a struggle to think, do I keep buying the water or do I run the gauntlet and drink gas water? Um, it's not very fair especially for the retired people of Yass and the pensioners and older people. Some people just, you know, they struggle with it from day to day. Uh, they shouldn't have to sort of double up on water, paying for their water, which most people are. It is an issue that is affecting the entire town, with a recent survey by the Yass Valley Council finding 85% of residents do not drink from the taps. During the 2019 state election, both major parties promised to fund a $10 million upgrade of the town's treatment plant. Earlier this year, a $2.5 million improvement project was finished, but the former coalition government said the full funding would not be released until a business case was completed due to concerns over cost blowouts. The council is expected to finish the report by the end of the month, but that is little consolation for Gail Reid. I think people shouldn't have to put up with, you know, drinking that sort of coloured water. I want my grandkids who live here in Yass to, to be able to drink you know, water that's drinkable and not happen to bath in a brownie coloured thing that comes out of a tap. You know, it's not right. I had my granddaughter babysitting her the other, other week and she went to the toilet and she yelled out, Nan! She said, someone forgot to flush the toilet. And I went in, I said, no, sweetheart, that's just yas water. <laughs> it was disgusting. It was just brown and, yeah. I said, no, it's yas water. The New South Wales Water Minister, Rose Jackson, was contacted for comment. 40 minutes up the road in Borowa, residents have similar concerns over the water. A report to the Hilltop Council released this week identified that the town's water treatment plant is unable to reduce hardness in the water, dissolve solids and chlorine, resulting in the supply regularly exceeding the aesthetic tests for the Australian drinking water guidelines. Angus Mitchell has lived in the town for nine years now and in that time has developed a worsening skin condition. The quality is terrible, unpalatable, unusable for drinking water. Um, and you can only really shower on it, and when you shower on it, I, you know, I and many, many others get skin problems from it. There's you know, people that move here, I've never had a skin problem, such as a rash on my chest when I was in Canberra, places like that, come here, all of a sudden I get rashes when I have a shower. Other people come here, they get um, dermatitis, skin problems, um, and a lot of kids um, get sore eyes from the chlorine that's in it. Um, and who knows what other chemicals are in that water so that it supposedly makes it safe for us to drink. The financial impact is being felt by many residents as well. The report identified high levels of magnesium, calcium and potassium in the water, creating a hardness in the supply that is damaging appliances and hot water systems. Resident Leanne Corkin says it's costing her hundreds of dollars to replace pipes. Well, hot water systems uh, go on a regular basis. That's because of the type of water well chemicals that are in it the town water will just corrode the air conditioning system and no one would have enough um, rainwater to actually keep an air conditioning system like that going through summer well I think it's laughable it's um, when you tell people um, not to drink the town water we have an Airbnb as you know it's it's just quite laughable and um, we could possibly attract other businesses
um, to Borua, but they need water security too. It's pretty third world considering we're so close to, as you say, Canberra and Sydney. For now, though, the residents of Borua are left to continue bearing the cost of poor water. Hamish Cole with that story on the water quality issues facing Yass and Borua in New South Wales. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Let's head to WA now, where authorities have confirmed a whale, which had been stranded on a beach south of Perth yesterday, has died. The 15-metre-long sperm whale, estimated to weigh more than 30 tonnes, came ashore at Rockingham Naval Memorial Park Beach. Now, the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions say the mammal was in poor condition, with an injury to its head and sunburn due to being in shallow water for an extended period of time. While arrangements were being made about what to do with the large whale carcass, local Indigenous elders were planning to hold a special cultural ceremony this afternoon to honour the huge animal. Indigenous community leader and elder George Wally told our reporter Kate Lever that the mamang, or whale, was an important cultural totem. It's part of cultural protocol, you know, because these amazing uh, whales, they, they are... Uh, from the past, someone's totem, and so what we're doing in, in protocol is uh, respecting our cultural practices, respecting respecting our uh, cultural knowledge, and respecting that which is related to us in a totem way. What is it about the whale that do you think that people are so attached to, and the whole community is just enamoured with them? Well, the whale or mamang is 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 really a uh, an amazing and majestic animal that lives in the waterways and they, they go you know, on their journey, a cyclic journey, and they come past here. So, and when they're coming past here, those, those complexities of the Nyungar seasons uh, align with its journey at this point and how we, um, we then respond to that, you know, as our ancestors have responded to that. Uh, our moment here today is very respectful of that and teaching the younger people those protocols as well from the cultural, cultural knowledge. My name is Trevor Wally. I'm one of the Noongar elders in the area. I've always lived in the Rockingham, Medina, Baldivis area. Tell me about the significance of this big whale here. Yes, well, the whale's called Mimang. They're, 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 they're the Mimang. The, their role in our culture is to grab the ancestors that are underneath the ocean and to bring them up onto the shore, onto the land and so the ancestors could be freed by the Aboriginal people through our song, dance and ceremony. So the whale brings the ancestors who are long gone back onto the land again through, the, through us participating in the cultural song, dance. We're going to have... Um, uh, an event, if you like, call it that, but it's our cultural law and cultural business to make sure the ancestors travel over the land again. There's so many people, bystanders, who have been watching this whale over the past couple of days and so many people involved and lots of staff and departments. How important is that for them to see your way and your ceremony about this? People want culture. They need the culture. They will see... Um, culture at its best and participate and have a clearer understanding about Aboriginal culture and our relationship with the ocean to the land 
and the whale is the link between the two. We just saw a couple of dolphins here before and you were telling me what they do, they bring the fish in. Yes, well we have stories of, um, of the, the dolphins, the keeler and um, the old man with a beard, he has to have a white beard, beard and wind has to be blowing in his direction and they use the tapping sticks, the, the tuk-tuk and they sing the song, chorn, 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 chorn and they call the dolphins to bring the fish into us. So the dolphins, we sing for the dolphin to bring the fish and we sing for the whale to bring us the ancestors. Trevor Wally speaking there to our reporter Kate Lever at Rockingham Beach this morning. All around the country, you're on ABC Australia-wide. I eat corn sometimes and my mum cooks it in the oven. Well, Charles, how much rain did we have? He said, no, none. I said, you're mad, man. ABC Australia-wide. Because I came from Wynyard area where it rains and rains and rains. And when it's not raining, it's raining more. On ABC Radio. Visiting an antiques or vintage store can feel like stepping into a time machine. At every turn, an item from a bygone era lays in wait, ready to pull the shopper into a portal to the past. But in regional Victoria, dealers say they fear the bricks and mortar stores could become history themselves, as online marketplaces continue to rise in popularity. This story from our reporter Lexi Junowick. It's a Thursday morning inside Leah Williams' Ballarat Antique store, Rocket and Bell. As an exquisite opera plays through the speakers, a customer takes a liking to several items in the outdoor section of the store. Leah instantly springs into action. Just the garden bench, you know. 1400 1400 Yes. And the three Cobbrookdale chairs? OK, $60 each. Seconds later, the deal's done. Well, I'll take those. Okay, great. Leah says she's one of the lucky ones to still be trading wares from times gone by in a traditional retail setting. As a business owner for about a decade now, have you seen it shift in terms of how people shop antiques? Yes, definitely uh, online is the way to go for most people. About 20 minutes away in the town of Creswick, Tim Dryley is packing up cardboard boxes filled with mid-century goods. After four years in business, he's permanently closing his vintage store, Tin Can Collective. It's been a great little business in town that I've really enjoyed being engaged in in my local community and and regionally and, and people coming in and telling all sorts of different stories. Tim says pressure from online marketplaces such as Gumtree, Facebook Marketplace and eBay have contributed to his decision to shut up shop. Having to adapt to the the virtual world, that can have its challenges when you have uh, marketplaces that are essentially free for people to engage in online and uh, it changes the nature of that space in terms of uh, the, the market for us as well. And there's opportunities in that, but there's inequities as well. A 2023 research report from e-commerce company Pattern surveyed 2,000 Australian consumers in February. It found 88% of those respondents bought from an online marketplace in the past year and 92% intended to make a purchase through an online marketplace in the year ahead. Tim's not bitter about 
about the rise of e-commerce though. He's now focusing on developing Tin Can Collective as an online store. As a business, we just have to adapt to that and innovate and find different ways to actually um, reflect ourselves to the market. And it's, um, you know, that's challenging in, a, in any small business and particularly with the financial pressures. There's a cocktail of effects going on at the moment, I think, for, for retail. Back in Ballarat, Leah is tackling increased online competition by carefully curating an Instagram page for her store. My followers might see a piece that I put up and send me a direct message and inquire about it and I always encourage them to come into the store. That sentiment is echoed 200 kilometres away in Warrnambool. The southwest Victorian city is home to the sprawling Fletcher Jones Market, which spans two floors and is packed with antiques. Market director Andy Walter has been there from the beginning. I've been involved in antiques for about 30 years, collectibles and antiques, mm. but this market site here, there's been a market on this site for about 17 years. And um, things have certainly changed. Like Leah Willian in Ballarat and Tim Dryley in Creswick, Andy's accepting of online retail but adamant the in-store experience can't be replicated on screen. You can't deny it, you don't want to ignore it, but there's always a place for the experience of coming, looking, touching, feeling, love that, I'll have that. I hope he's right. That was Fletcher Jones Market Director Andy Walker in Warrnambool ending that story from Lexi Junowick. And that is Australia Wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast Australia Wide whenever you want to. Just head to the ABC Listen app, search for Australia Wide and Bob's your uncle, you'll find us and then you can subscribe, which means you'll have great stories from all over regional Australia whenever you want to. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a great evening. I'll speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.